Hello and welcome to Critical Thinking and Critical Issues. I'm Amit Popat and I head up our wealth management business in Europe and Amita. And I'll be your host for this episode where we'll be exploring the findings from our 2022 Wealth Management Investment Survey. Through the episode, I'll be joined by Mercer colleagues and special guests to discuss the increased interest in private markets and macro challenges reflected in the sector that were highlighted within the report as well as the range of possible action points. Joining me today to discuss the private market's key findings is Stephanie Hackett, who is a partner and portfolio manager at Evercore Wealth Management, and Kenny Pittman, who is a senior private market specialist at Mercer in the US. Welcome, Stephanie and Kenny. It's great to have you here. Hi, Amit. Thanks for having Happy us. Happy to be here. Great. Stephanie, uh, if I may, can I kick off with you? Um, one of the, uh, I think, more interesting aspects of the survey uh, was that um, actually nearly three quarters, in fact, 73%, but nearly three quarters of the respondents uh, who replied to the survey have said that they are either going to or are already invested in uh, private markets or illiquid assets in the next 12 months. I think that's quite a high statistic, obviously, from a, a confidence level. But, but why now? You know, I, that's consistent with what we're seeing with our families and our clients that we work with. Uh, what they're looking to do is add into their portfolios that potential for outside growth or some diversification. And private markets and illiquid assets bring both of those. So within um, private equity and venture, we see a lot of potential for that, that uh, really uh, above what we can get in public markets and increased return. Um, but also we see there's a lot of uh, opportunity to invest in assets that are not necessarily in sync with the public markets. So their uh, returns are dependent on things like uh, royalty streams, medical innovation, adoption of new technologies. Uh, and so they're going to add some diversification benefits uh, to the overall portfolio uh, for our families. And then obviously, I mean, we're in an environment where Wealth managers are particularly concerned about inflation. I think there's little confidence really in the ability to generate the returns in traditional asset classes, I guess, that we've seen in the last 10 years or so. But Kenny, I mean, as we think about the why now question, I mean, the, the institutional investors have been using private markets for, for many years, really, and, you know, particularly in the endowment and foundation space, but in the, in the pension space. So what's really changed, um, you know, there's the economic environment that we talk about now, but what's really changed within the, the sector that means that, that private markets is more accessible to wealth managers and their clients, really? Yeah, yeah, no, you know, taking a, taking a step back, I think, you know, there are things that have changed and there are things that haven't changed. I, I, I do want to get everyone off the thought of thinking about private investments as a as a tactical asset class, the, the reality is that a good chunk of our economy and a good chunk of our world takes place outside of publicly listed exchanges and it has been doing so for a long time. So institutional investors have realized that for a number of years, but you know, there, there have been a number of impediments for, for, for retail or private wealth oriented investors to invest in the space, whether it's asset managers requiring large minimums, or it's a level of complexity that they felt was was outside of their control, or you know, candidly high fees, which which still may need to come down a bit, um, you know, before this this space becomes truly mainstream. But um, you know, I 
I think those impediments are changing. Um, you see platforms, you see firms like Evercore kind of breaking that down for their clients and, and slowly and slowly asset managers are realizing that there's an opportunity here to invest or to, you know, to get private wealth money in the door um, to grow their businesses. So the world is changing, but there are a number of things that that also have not changed. And I think the primary thing that has not changed is that there, there is, there has, and there will continue to be a number of diversifying and interesting investments in the private space. Ahmed, if you don't mind me adding on to that, I think, you know, one one thing that's interesting, Kenny mentioned, there's so much of in the U.S., the businesses that are private, privately held, many of the ultra high net worth families generated their wealth in that way. So it's a very natural thing for them to add that uh, private equity or venture capital or even real estate into their portfolios. Um, And, you know, as we mentioned before, these are portfolios that are growing and increasing their commitment levels because they're still building that in the portfolio. Um, So that's an attractive space for the uh, for the the funds, the, G, 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 the GPs to target as a growth investor, um, you know. So we really think of ourselves as you know going through that same institutional process. Uh, we same due diligence, same targeting those same top managers. We're just at the end of the day representing uh, what is a growing field of of families rather than pensions and endowments. And so we're now getting access to a lot of really interesting. Investment investment opportunities. And, and Stephanie, just uh, ping-ponging, um, you know, we work with a number of families who are, who are as good of private investors through their businesses as some of the private equity firms. So I, I think it's incumbent on organizations like Mercer and, and, and Evercore to, to remind everybody that we're not just talking about private private equity too, you know, for, for a wealthy family that's made their their through their money through kind of a corporate pursuit probably time to diversify and look at other asset classes too. Um, you know, so we're, we're seeing things like credit and real estate and other opportunities that allow these families to, you know, to kind of harness and hold on to that wealth in a little bit more of a stable way than, than managing a singular business or, or a couple of different businesses. And I, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity there for, for family offices in particular. And I think that's a good point, Kenny. I think there's both the combination of the range of asset classes. And, and with that comes, obviously, a fair amount of complexity as well. But I think, as you said, the types of solutions, the increased uh, the, the propositions that have maybe slightly higher liquidity associated with them. I think there's a there's an evolution, should we say, in the, in the, uh, the segment to make the private markets more accessible. But what does that mean, either Kenny yourself or Stephanie, what does that mean for the diligence? You know, I mean, ultimately, you know, private markets are longer term assets. You know, you commit today and you, you are principally locked up for a period of time subject to the structure of the product. I mean, what does that really mean when you think about the due diligence process, you know, maybe some of the experiences you have about what what should be the key considerations. The the primary thing that means there there are very few takebacks um, in this space. You can't trade out of a of a mistake like you can with credit, you know, with liquid liquidly traded credit or equity vehicles, and that that's really important. If you're if you're making one of these commitments on the low end, you're probably looking at a seven year commitment on the high end, you're looking at 12 to 15 years. And if you want to get out of that, you're probably taking a haircut on that investment anywhere from, you know, five to 25%. So, you know, due diligence is important and, and good risk management is doing the work up front and making good decisions up front. And I think that is the most meaningful change between publicly traded and privately owned businesses, because at the end of the day, you're buying a company. 
how it's traded, how it's executed, how that deal gets done is where the difference is. And, and you know, candidly, privates, the deal liquidity is where a lot of the risk is. Stephanie, I don't, I don't know if you have anything to add there. Yeah, I think the other thing that we work a lot with our families on is to think about adding illiquid assets into their portfolio. It's really a program. You want to be investing over multiple years so you get a diversification across uh, vintage years. You want different strategies. You want different. Uh, you want some growth potential, some diversification potential, and that is a complicated process uh, each year. You know. Uh, our favorite funds only come back every two to four years. We have to think about the schedule of commitments. And so, you know, that's where we're really working with our families to kind of build out that that program. But it's it's challenging because ideally you want to be allocating every year across several asset classes. And, you know, for a family that has $50 million and they're allocating 10% to uh, illiquids, that $5 million broken over several years really comes out to, you know, uh, we need uh, private families usually want to come in at lower investment minimum so that they can get that diversification and then continually, uh, you know, uh, continually make new commitments into uh, each year into the different asset classes. We, uh, we have we have a joke around here that you have to make a plan so that you can break it. And, you know, I think that's kind of particularly important here. The world is not going to go to to plan, but that that pacing model that that Stephanie's talking about and that plan that you're building, you have to have a framework so that you understand the decision make you're making when and if you break it. And, and it helps you be a lot more cohesive, makes you feel better on a daily basis. It is probably kind of the most central important thing that that people who are looking at this space can try to understand. No, I, I agree, Kenny. And I think, you know, I think there is an element of, of, of understanding that it is successive years of commitment, as you said, Stephanie, as opposed to a one-off investment this year to take an opportunistic uh, chance on private markets. But you know, as we talk about families, we talk about wealth, you know, we, we, we have to talk and rightly talk about intergenerational planning and ESG. You know, we, ultimately, uh, that's a, a, a thesis and a theme that is critical to the secular change that we're seeing. Uh, and again, I guess maybe from both of your experiences, you know, how are you seeing private markets align to the theme of uh, integration of ESG? So, so what's interesting is we're seeing a lot more demand uh, for this to be uh, reflected in into client portfolios, but it's very customized. Some are focused on the E environmental, some the social aspects, and some the government aspects. And so for each client, where their focus is, is, is can be very different type of investment. Um, when we're reflecting ESG in a public equity portfolio, you can tilt towards the good actors and tilt away from the metrics that you want to avoid. Um, but private markets really offers you that pure play. You are investing behind a company that is building solutions in uh, whatever metric you want from the ground up. And so you can invest behind whatever uh, is important to you, whether it's um, renewable energy, improved education, accessible uh, medical care, affordable housing, all of those are, you know, kind of that opportunity to really put all of that innovation and, and that longer term investment behind that pure play. Uh, and so you're really getting the focus for those families that want to have that in, the, in their portfolio. It's much easier to express. Um, and then the other thing is time is on our side. So 
these are very long-term investments and the transition and in, uh, for a lot of the ESG metrics are going to take years. Um, and so it's better fit to have it in that long-term portfolio. I think time's a time's a relevant discussion here too. I, Mercer has a number of other podcasts and white papers that can do a better job of showing our views on ESG than I can in a couple of minutes. But you know, the reality is that that the world is changing. Things are happening here, and when you are a wealthy family or a wealthy individual, um, you know, you're you're probably thinking about your kids, or your kids' kids, 50, 60, 70 years out, and 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 those changes will be real for them, and they have to be in a position where they can adapt and and continue to live their life in that world. And I think that changes the time frame that you need to look at, the risk management process, and how you need to look at risk and time um, as as you're trying to fend for you know fend for the people that come behind you. Stephanie, thank you very much. Kenny, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you all for listening. Joining me today to discuss the macro environment and the implication to wealth managers is Janet Lee, who is head of our wealth business in Asia, and Stephen Koshigogli, a senior strategist with our strategic research group. Hi, Janet and Stephen. Hi, uh, Hi Ahmed. Um, Look, we're, we're in an environment, an economic environment, which we haven't seen for many years, of course, with inflation being, should we say, around 85 to 10% uh, in the US or Europe or UK. Um, to curb this inflation, we're seeing each of the central banks significantly increase rates. Uh, this is expected to continue for the foreseeable future. Uh, maybe, Stephen, if I, if I could start with you. Um, what sort of challenges do you think this type of environment, the high inflationary environment, the, the rate increase environment, what, what, what challenges do you think that, that's raising for wealth managers? Sure, Anand. At a very high level, wealth managers are facing a more demanding investment outlook due to a tightening financial conditions and rising geopolitical risk. The reality is inflation is a major challenge for wealth managers because it is a major challenge for central banks. And unfortunately, the days of cutting rates into a recession are long gone. So it doesn't surprise me, our surveys found around 6% of wealth managers consider inflation to be their greatest challenge. In essence, this is because when inflation is high and protracted, wealth managers with an inflation plus or capital preservation return target will struggle to meet client objectives in the short and even medium term. Moreover, the macroeconomic consequences of inflation require higher levels of interest rates, which mean equities and bonds perform, poor, perform poorly, a combination which is detrimental to tra traditional 60-40 portfolios. If we look at what's gone on year to date in 2022, um, we can see that multi-asset managers in US dollar terms, have returned anywhere between sort of minus 14% for a lower risk portfolio up to minus 23% for a higher risk portfolio to the end of September. Um, over the summer, I, I took the opportunity to speak to a couple of investment managers about performance given the challenging macro market environment. And one in particular told me that even though he has managed money through economic crises such as the dot-com crash, the 2008 financial crisis, and the 2020 pandemic, he was more concerned now because there will be no cavalry this time around. That is, the so-called Fed puts is far out of the money, 
and his outlook is in line with the World Bank, which has warned the probability of a global recession has risen due to synchronized rate hikes by major central banks in response to inflation, which raises the real prospect wealth managers could be facing high inflation, higher for longer interest rates, and a recession all at the same time. I hope that gives a brief insight into the core challenges wealth managers are facing, and I would conclude by encouraging them to review the inflation protection and rising rate asset mix within their portfolios, and to ensure portfolios are diversified both across and within asset classes by geography, sectors, factors, investment styles, and non-traditional market features. That's great, Stephen. I think we'll, come, we'll definitely want to maybe come back and discuss briefly uh, the 60-40 portfolio, maybe some ideas around um, other types of asset classes. Um, but Jenny, maybe on, on this topic, obviously, um, you know, the inflationary environment is somewhat different in Asia, right? you know, um, I think it's being relatively lower at about five and a half percent and in a lower, slightly lower than its peak, in fact. Now, of course, a lot of the investors are international investors, but, but how do the challenges, you know, what Stephen outlined, how, how do they resonate with wealth managers and investors in Asia? I think, Ahmed, what you cited as the discrepancy or the gap or the divergence might actually be narrowing. So what Stephen said just now in his part resonates a lot with many of the Asian countries as well. So in fact, I wanted to refer to our 2022 Global Wealth Management Investment Survey. And because in that survey, the wealth management organizations have identified two investment challenges over the next two years. And they were very similar to what Stephen highlighted for other investors globally. And first one being bulk of the investors um, believe that what they concern or they think the most challenging investment themes over the upcoming two years would be the market volatility. Um, then next is to follow by the low expected investment returns and also higher inflation. And which there was a bit of a time lag between now and when we did the survey. So if we actually conduct it again now, I trust the percentage who opt for market volatility, high inflation, and low expected investment returns would be much, much higher. And what might be unique, but maybe not as unique, but however, is still pretty common across many Asian countries would be investment restrictions, and mainly coming from the capital control and the flexibility in capital flow cross-border, which somehow would limit the investment opportunities of the wealth managers and also their clients. And so this area, we have seen that pose challenges on innovation uh, resulted in some suboptimal product developments. So we have seen in some of these markets, and these are not the developed markets or the mature markets, um, they, their products for their wealth managers and their clients are slightly more identical with high fees and some suboptimal design, which it's hard to deliver the returns about the inflation in the local country. So these are all the challenges that we have seen across wealth managers um, facing in Asia. Tough times, I think, and I think, you know, obviously tough times for wealth managers to think about how they should be looking at building and, and um, should we say, strengthening their portfolios around the uncertainty of the future, but tough times for, for clients as well just to manage their expectations about, you know, future outcomes in their, their particular portfolio. Stephen, also you mentioned the 60-40 uh, being challenged. So 
Um, I think we briefly touched on it, but I, I wouldn't mind going slightly deeper, Janet, maybe. I mean, in light of the challenges that you've outlined, you know, some of the diversification challenges, the inflationary challenges, the expectation of lower returns in traditional assets, shall we say, uh, going forward, a 60-40 portfolio. But, but what are the actions that wealth managers are actually taking to address these, these challenges then? Indeed, I mean, this has been a challenging time. And I think Stephen also addressed it um, in, in the earlier part of his sharing as well. So many wealth managers in Asia, they are taking similar action. And again, just wanted to quote some figures for the audience um, reference. Um, so I got, again, referring to our survey, the wealth management organization's top two investment opportunities, as they highlighted over the next two years, were uh, number one, a diversifying portfolios away from traditional asset classes, and i.e. fixed income and equity. So that's something I I observe uh, was mentioned in Stephen's session earlier. Then number two would be um, climate change, uh, especially clean energy and, and other related areas, how... Um, how, what actions are wealth managers undertaking in, in those aspects in relation to product? Um, and the third one, I feel I wanted to mention it despite we asked about top two, uh, because I think this is very much relevant to the wealth management sector, is related to technology. For instance, robotics, cybersecurity, these are the areas which particularly resonate and um, are key to wealth management sector as technology itself in tech and also many robot advisory is what we have seen pick up a lot in Asia, especially in some developed markets, uh, somehow becoming sort of um, not yet mainstream, but a very common type of investment model by the individual investors through their wealth managers. And so as I looked at the top highlighted trend um, and the actions by the wealth managers, clearly the move and the diversification away from traditional asset class is not something new. Um, in a market environment where everybody is competing for yield uh, and also market share as well uh, to deliver to their clients, we have seen that wealth management uh, have moved more into investment into private markets or the non-traditional investment space. And the interests have picked up, especially recently. Um, and this is an area which used to be more invested by the big institutional or sophisticated clients. Again, for obvious reasons, as driven by the yield demand and also the competition for market share. Um, and, and so amongst the respondents, um, more than 50% of them have already invested into private markets. Uh, but more importantly, there, there were more than 20% of the respondents indicating that they will be considering making an allocation in the next 12 months. I just want to quickly comment on climate change. Um, and we have seen that regulators and industry associations across the region have been looking closely on how to prevent greenwashing by introducing new regulations and principles around this area. So more to come. And again, that that's something we have observed from uh, our so our um, survey results as well, that Asian wealth managers generally expect more regulatory um, to come in, in the near term. And meanwhile, many wealth managers have been keen to be on board with promoting climate change as this has positive uh, impact on their branding. Uh, and obviously, everybody would wanted to contribute as well. So these are two of the key actions taken by the wealth managers uh, in light of the challenges outlined. They might not be perfect solutions, but these are the solutions we have seen 
picking up by many of the players locally. That's great, Jenny, and I think great insights there. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, again, I think what's interesting there is, you know, there's presumably a high correlation between some of those newer strategies, should we say cyber risk or energy transition and accessibility of private markets. I think, you know, those opportunities to participate in those are also very strong in the private markets. And, and, and Stephen, there's been a lot of discussion in, about private markets in, in wealth management. Uh, there's democratization of private markets is a, a term that's used quite frequently. And we're seeing new innovation of products and, and approaches by GPs to make private markets more accessible to, to a broader range of investors, should we say, over and beyond traditional institutional investors. But but Stephen, you know, if you think about wealth managers, and this is a relatively new area for wealth managers, what would you suggest that they should be mindful of when investing in, in private markets? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I think you've made a great point there. Um, the three key areas I would like to focus on are access, which you kind of alluded to about the democratization of private markets, um, capturing the themes, and product innovation. Um, with access, the democratization of private markets, without a doubt, has been the biggest change in the asset class in recent decades. Uh, private markets have previously been relatively inaccessible if you weren't in the ultra high net worth or family office space, but this has now broadened out to the rest of wealth management, to sort of more um, lower high net worth mass affluent, um, because the factors that stop that from happening have been overcome through changes in regulations and fund structures and i think more importantly tech enabled platforms which now allow lower minimums um simplify the management of cash flow and suitability procedures the fact more investors can access potential return enhancing and portfolio diversifying strategies is a major positive but and this is a big but advisors and clients need to be sufficiently educated to the complexity and liquidity um, risks involved. The other area is, is themes, and we are seeing great opportunities within private markets to capture multiple themes such as inflation protection through allocating to floating rate private debt funds that have lower um, default rates, or position for climate transition by accessing pioneering strategies across venture capital and sustainable infrastructure. And the, the the benefit about using private markets capturing this theme instead of public markets is that wealth managers capture the additional trend of companies staying private for longer. And finally, you've already mentioned it, but product innovation. Um, given time constraints, I would, I would just focus on continuation funds. Last year, they accounted for more than half of the deal flow in secondaries. Instead of selling companies outright or listing them on an exchange, private equity firms are using continuation funds to hold on to star portfolio performance for longer. But it's just important to note that the risk profile of these funds are quite different. They're more concentrated, but have a lower um, lockup period of around four to six years. The benefit really for wealth managers is that they can help mitigate JCO, reduce blind pool risk, and have an earlier return of capital. Finally, the key takeaway wealth managers is that by considering private markets you're really expanding your investable universe 
Even that's great. And I think it's very helpful to, to take some of those macro themes and distill them down to maybe some of the ideas for wealth managers to consider. So, so thank you very much. I think we're, we're uh, out of time now. So Janet, thank you very much for joining us from, from Asia. Stephen, thanks for, for joining us. And thank you listeners for listening today. Uh, we'll be back soon for episode two uh, with my colleague Cara Williams and other special guests to explore more of the key findings from the Global Wealth Management Survey, including uh, sustainability and outsourcing. Uh, for now, if you like listening to this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information, reach out to your local Mercer representative or email us at ctci at mercer.com. Thank you very much. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions.